1: This podcast is sponsored by Regatta Outdoors. It's a glorious spring day and you're heading out on a walk. What do you bring with you? A paper map? Plenty of snacks? Well, of course they're important, but any seasoned hiker will tell you that footwear is the first thing to consider. Whether you prefer relaxed rambles or challenging summits, comfortable and reliable shoes are essential. Regatta has waterproof and breathable footwear for the whole family for every outdoor occasion. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the Country Farm Magazine podcast. We've been putting together another exciting issue this month and despite the miserable weather, we've all had a chance to get out and about in the countryside. For our cover story, I went up to a very wet and muddy farm in Cheshire to catch up with the busiest man in showbiz, Matt Baker. I wanted to find out how he trained his lovely sheepdogs Meg and Lace.
2: So I got a high jump pole off and I put a tennis ball on the end of it and, I, and she was running to try and grab the end of the tennis ball as I would swing around.
3: We sent Countryfile presenter Jules Hudson into the wilds of Worcestershire to meet native skills expert James Watson and learn how our prehistoric ancestors made tools out of flint.
4: If you strike a piece of flint, that, you know, that, noise, that noise would have been heard in camps for you know thousands and thousands of years.
3: And while Tim and I were being buffed about on a windy, ch- muddy Cheshire farm and Jules Hudson was huddling round a campfire, editorial assistant Abigail White drew the long straw and tucked into seven prize desserts at the infamous Pudding Club in the Cotswolds, a self-proclaimed medieval banquet with custard.
5: We are trying to have our dinner but we are also thinking of the seven puddings we have to try and quite frankly it's rather daunting.
0: I'm actually a bit frightened. I think if we weren't doing a hike tomorrow I wouldn't have liked to come to the pudding evening because I'd have felt so guilty eating seven puddings in a row.
3: And more from Abigail, Jules and Matt later. But first, Joe and Abigail from the Countryfile magazine team are here to tell you a little bit more about the March issue.
6: Great Days Out this month focused on prehistoric Britain with our guide to the country's best stone circles, barrows and hill forts. Julia Bradbury experienced the wild beauty of the Peak District when she joined an archaeological dig at a Bronze Age hill fort called Finn Cop. Lucy Gilmore put together an ultimate guide to the wind-battered ancient tombs, monoliths and stone circles of the heart of Neolithic Orkney. And David Hughes discovered a subterranean wonderland of rocks, sculptures and caverns when he pulled together a feature on Britain's most exciting caves.
0: Neil Coates explored an area that I know well, the borderland between England and Wales, known as the Welsh Marches. Well, I've lived in Herefordshire and the Welsh Marches since I was 14, and I've always seen it as a very tranquil, bucolic landscape. And I had no idea it had such a bloody past, and that for centuries this land of cider orchards and sleepy cattle and valleys were rife with bloody battles and sieges.
3: But first our cover story on Matt Baker. Now, most of you may know Matt from his, his role on Countryfile, where he's been presenting the show for about two years. But recently, before Christmas, he had, well, enormous success on the Strictly Come Dancing show when we saw another side, the light-footed, snake-hipped Matt Baker, <laughs> <laughs> Paso doble rumbering. Um, and this obviously caught everyone's attention and now he's bagged a job on the One Show as well as Countryfile. So I wanted to find out a bit more about Matt beyond beyond the dance floor, Matt beyond the One Show sofa... Matt, the man who sort of grew up on a Durhamdales farm among sheepdogs and sheep, just find out a bit about what really makes him tick and particularly how he came to train his very first sheepdog.
2: My first, my very first dog myself was, um, was Lace. And that was when I was 14. And yeah, she was, that was when I wanted to really start myself with, with sheep dogs and, um, and, you know, have my train at myself and all this, that and the other. And I remember coming home from school. She and um, she, she was a collier, bought a collier, yeah. And uh, I remember coming home from school and I opened up the stable door and she was in there. And I didn't know it was, I didn't actually know that that was when it was going to start. And mum had been out and got, got this dog. And I came home and she said, you know, I've got a surprise for you down in the stables. And I went down and opened it up, and there was this tiny little collie sat there in the basket, and uh, and that was her. And, 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 and it was, you know, she felt that I was at the age where, you know, I needed to know about responsibility and all of that kind of stuff and having the animal, you know, as my own, as opposed to kind of relying on them all of the time to feed the family animals. And, um, yeah, so instead of getting a hamster, I got a, <laughs> a <laughs> collie. So I started doing a little bit of work with Lace and just kind of, um, you know, training her up. What I used was I used a football because all, all my experience with dogs beforehand had been through play and messing around and just being out and about. So I thought, I wonder if I can apply the same kind of skills or the same kind of techniques to creating a sheepdog. So I'd have a, I'd have a football and I'd get her running round me and running around me with a football and just go and come by in a way. So you've got come by which is clockwise and you've got anti-clockwise which is away. So you'd see that instinct start coming and then I'd send her out and I'd keep the football in the middle and I'd stop her from running into it and running into it and this, that and the other and then I'd just put commands to that and then eventually I realised that as I would say away she would be associating that and that's how we did it. So I never even introduced it to she to start with at all and then I wanted to get her going wider because she was running in a little bit too much and me having sport, quite, <laughs> quite a sporty background I'd have all sorts of kind of weird sports equipment around in the barns and all of that. So I've got a high jump pull off and I put a tennis ball on the end of it. And, I, and she was running to try and grab the end of the tennis ball as I would swing around so I'd get her to go further a flanks to get wider so I used her you know a, a high jump pole and a tennis ball and all this that and the other and then what I would do is I'd lift it up high into the air and as soon as I did that I'd shout her to lie down so, she, so then she'd start lying down as the high jump pole went I mean it's utterly ridiculous so she didn't know you know she wouldn't know what, but it's, it's all it's in them anyway it's an instinct that you've got to work with I mean that's the beauty of sheepdog trying and that's what I love so much. And then I went to the ATB classes, sort of knowing that she could. Um, you know, I didn't want to spoil us so I didn't want to put her in with sheep or anything like that because I knew I was going to go to these courses. So I wanted to kind of just turn up, but knowing that she was going to listen to me. And uh, so anyway, we walked up there, and I had my little wax jacket on and off. We went, and uh, it was. And there was all <laughs> loads of farmers and all of that in this little group, and uh, there's me just stood there with my crook. And uh, and anyway, I, I let her off a of lead, and I thought, what is she going to do here? What's it going to be like? What is she Going to happen and Derek who was there he took he took her little little Lee uh, t- took her by the collar and he walked her up and he said well I'll just I'll just have a little look I said look she's really fresh I said you know she's never seen sheep she but she does I think she knows her commands because I told him and he you know he thought it was quite funny the fact that I'd done it with a football and a high jump ball and everything anyway so uh, he, he, he set her off and he set her and he, he used his experience and put her into positions and moved around and just watched her natural flow on the sheep and um, Anyway, he came back and I was like, oh gosh, what did he reckon? And he walked up to me, clipped clicked on the lead and he said, well, he said, there's only two things wrong with that dog. I said, is there? I said, oh no, and I was gutted. I was like, what's wrong with it? He said, one is its name and the other is that it doesn't belong to me. <laughs>
6: that was Matt Baker talking about his childhood growing up on a farm in the Durandales. And while Matt was thinking back to his life 20 years ago, we transported his co-presenter, Jules Hudson, back 40,000 years and challenged him to perfect the time-honoured process of flint napping. As Jules discovered, making Stone Age tools is real experimental archaeology and gives you an insight into our prehistoric ancestors that you can't learn from books.
7: Now, I'm about to start... The time honoured process of flint napping with you, James. Yeah. Um, we've got a green sheet in front of us, it's covered in bits and pieces of flint,
4: some huge, great big nodules. Where is this from? Well, this is um, all this flint in front of you, I think, is from uh, Norfolk. Um, Norfolk uh, is probably the best, I'd say, the best flint in, in the whole world. Um, I have um, friends who um, big time sort of flint nappers in America. And they sort of quietly say to me, sort of uh, say, it's actually the best. Uh, <laughs> well, it's famous
7: because uh, of Grimes Graves. Oh, I mean, yeah, one of the definitely. great
4: flint lines of prehistoric Britain. Yeah, it's that it's an amazing scene that goes from sort of Norfolk uh, down... You get some of it down into sort of a um, sort of new forest area. Um, but uh, Norfolk is definitely the place. But it's not, it's
7: not just an ancient art, though, because flintnappers in Norfolk are still very much in demand for walling and house yep, repair and that right, sort yeah. of thing. But we've got a chance to really go back in time to try and create some of the more familiar flint tools that we might recognise in museums and in
4: the archaeological record. That's right, yeah. When, when you look at this flint, um, you know, this really takes me back. This is what we you know, as our ancestors would have seen every day. And what I like about, well, about flint, it's not just the visual, it's about the sound. If you, if you strike a piece of flint, that, you know, that noise, that noise would have been heard in camps for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Um... And, it, and it's your, it's your, it's your, it's your workshop really. Isn't it is. It? I mean, yeah. it, this lump of flint
7: can produce absolutely anything you need. Exactly. To yeah. hunt, to kill, to prepare food,
4: to chop down trees, to keep warm. It's, it's your, it's your uh, prehistoric sort of um, uh, Swiss Army knife, I think. You know, <laughs> you can create whatever tool you want. Yes. You know, that's a
7: that's, that's a very good way you know. of putting it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. But um, it's uh, you know, what, what, when we think about flint tools, it's um. We think of those beautiful hand axes, you know, for butchering sort of woolly mammoths and uh, uh, stone knives and uh, spear points and all those really sort of um, uh, advanced sort of flint knapping. But if you take, you know, just a flake of flint like this, this is just a piece that's come off. And um, I should know. I should probably
7: just explain to what, you, what I'm holding in my hand is a piece of flint about, oh, I say two inches square, it's in the rough shape of... I suppose a, 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 a leaf, really, but it's not been worked in any way not at, all, at all. One side of it is clearly absolutely razor sharp, and as you say, without any preparation, that will cut anything.
4: That will it? cut that. You'll skin a deer with that. You could butcher a whole deer with that. That's all you need. I mean, even a smaller piece, sort of like that, you could you know, butcher as, any, as many animals as you want. And so archaeologically,
7: when we find these deposits in the ground, of course, we see just the bits, because yeah. often the tool is long gone. Yeah. But it's interesting to try and reconstruct the flakes to see what it
4: would have produced, what
7: they would have
4: produced. I I have friends who are um, sort of archaeologists and they spend a long long time in labs. Gluing bits together. (laughs) buckets full of flint (laughs) trying to find what it it looked like at the beginning.
7: So what are we going to try and make today?
4: Well, really, you know, the whole purpose of today is um, we want you to start making arrows. So what I would like to do is sort of show you how to sort of make usable flakes of flint, start scraping arrow shafts and and, um, sort of... um, We'll work with a bit more sort of technical, sort of pressure flaking to make tools that you can cut notches and things like that. So what we have here is um, the tools of the trade. Um, when you're working stone, you know flint. There's lots of other stones you know all around the world. There's things like obsidian and uh, naviculites and jasper and jadeite. Jadeite. Lots, lots of nappable stones. But you know, in Europe, what we had was flint and um, to, to work flint, you know, it's really hard, hard it's a hard material. Um, as I said earlier, you know, Norfolk is the best flint. It's, um, uh, you can get s- such beautiful flint that um, when you when you hit it with another stone, it, it sounds like a when you're striking a glass. Well, I pick you know. up
7: this hammer stain here, and these, I mean, it's nice to see yours work. Yes. I mean, this is, because it is experimental archaeology, yeah, isn't it? for sure. But this is the stuff we find in the grounds mm-hmm. when we're digging up prehistoric sites. You can just imagine, you know as you say that's the sound that would have echoed around every settlement
4: yeah in for northern sure. europe yeah definitely the yeah. No, these the, the stone you have at the moment is what's called a soft hammer stone so it's a, it's a stone but it's um if you it to this one this is a hard hammer stone pretty much the same size what i'm holding it fits very neatly into the palm of my hand it's about i don't know
7: five inches long about two three inches wide and very comfortable actually yeah it's, a, it's, it's got a lovely resonance
4: yeah so the one in your right hand came from um, Aberystwyth. <laughs> um, if you ever, you know... I know it nice well. Ice, it's, it's... Get a nice ice cream and some hammerstones from Aberystwyth. It's, it's just, uh... <laughs> that's interesting, isn't it? Don't tell everybody that no, there'd yeah. be
7: nothing left on the beach.
4: <laughs> yeah, OK. Um, so what we start off with, when we work a tool, uh, when we work stone, we start with hammerstones and then we move on to uh, antler. Antler is what's known as the soft hammer. So you can use things like antler or, or bone... Uh, even wood sometimes. Yeah. It's um, but this is um, deer uh, antler. Deer antler. Yep. Uh, this one is actually was gifted to me from America. This is um, moose. Wow. Um, so if you feel the weight of that, good heavens, this. that is that is actually quite heavy, isn't it? Yeah. So that's only a small part of the moose's antler. So this is this
7: is the sound of Aberystwyth, Aberystwyth. beach <laughs> on our great big flint nodule, and this is moose. Totally different sound. Yeah. Interesting. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass you the pad. Okay. this is essential. If you're going to have a go at this,
4: make sure you do protect your your thigh. Very important. Uh, It's like breaking a glass bottle on your leg, isn't it? It really really is. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, safety is really important. Gloves, people like to use, and goggles, for sure. it's, you know, it's difficult to get flint out of your eye.
7: Now you've got this this piece of flint in your hand there, which I'm going to take now. It's um, it's about uh, what nine inches long, or suppose about four inches wide. Yeah. You've have a, you've got an eye as to, as to how you're working this and what you're yeah. going to create from it. Yeah. Where would I hit now?
4: Where's the so, best place to go? I'm looking at this. What of what we have here is one flatter surface than this than the other. Yeah. What we you know when you when you're flintknapping you're looking for problems. It's a bit like a chess game. You know, you just see you know how to conquer problems yeah so what I have is what I call a problem is this big um, sort of uh, raised area yeah we want to get this nice and flat like this so what I need to do is sort of look at the piece and um, try and work out how to remove that so when you when you hit uh, um, your your flint you're hitting it on the, your the, reverse side. the reverse side yeah so what I need to do is create what's known as a platform yeah now platform is the area where you where you strike the stone. Um, so here what I'll I'll just quickly do for you is create a platform. So you're just taking off one of the edges there. Yeah and just an oblique angle. I guess so what you quick. what you're trying to do is to direct the shockwave, that's what it's about, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Exactly. So what I've done is I've, I've taken quite an oblique angle, which has created a platform here. So what I need to do now is what's called a braiding, which is just to strengthen the edge. You can either use a special stone, this is a man-made stone, or you can use your hammer stone, just to basically shear off all the, the loose bits and pieces. So what we have here now is a nice angle to hit here, which yep. should come across and take this off. In theory. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> what I can see as a problem is you see this this fracture all the way through? Yeah. Yeah. What could happen is it could snap in half. But that's splinter. <laughs> oh, <yeah. Sure. laughs> One way to find out. Yeah. So. Um, okay, so I'm going to hold it like that. So I'd hold that on your knee like this, yeah. And um, strike here, straight down, straight down. Try not to hit your knee. <laughs> here we go. So uh, it hit that fracture and it totally I've <laughs> so now got a great big lump in my... It <laughs> <laughs> worked really well. Uh, but it just goes to show you how difficult it is. It, it is. You know, it's... All the time you, you think you've got this perfect piece of flint, but yeah. there could be so many different things, fossils. So when that, that energy hits a fossil or a piece of um, uh, a stone that was uh, formed within, in, within it, yeah. uh, that's when the energy gets dispersed and sort of goes out to the edge. But it does make you realise
7: just how important those
4: beautiful things that we do all oh, yeah, from the definitely. period are and
7: how how much time and effort and skill mm. goes into them. It's not a primitive
4: oh, gosh, business stone no. tools, no. is it at no. All? no. And what I like to think about is, you know, the person who made that must have sat around some, someone in a, in a napping area as a young child, you know, just absorbing it. I think, you know, if you look at other cultures, kids in other sort of tribal cultures, they, they don't get spoon-fed like we do in our, our society. We're not told this is how you do it. It's all about observing and watching. And that's how, I think that's how our ancestors must have learned these skills, just by watching and, and listening.
0: That was Jules Hudson on learning how to craft weapons out of stone. And now for a cosier day out. Every Friday at the Three Ways House in Mickleton, seven glistening puddings are paraded in front of a group of salivating guests to the sound of hungry cheers and drumming of spoons on tables. The Pudding Club has been going since 1985 and it's a chance to see, to eat seven champion puddings and then walk them off in the Cotswolds. As I became progressively more full up with stodgy pudding, I chatted to my fellow Pudding Club members about their favourite puddings. OK, I'm here at the Pudding Club here in Mickleton, and uh, yeah, we're just having dinner um, before we test out the seven puddings that are coming our way. And I'm sat here next to Sylvia Pocock. And uh, so, Sylvia, you've not you've not been to this Pudding Club before, have you?
5: No, we, um, I haven't been to the Pudding Club as the Pudding Club, but I have stayed at this hotel on several, several occasions um, and always found it um, a lovely place to stay. Uh, we use it as a base and we go out to um, all the lovely gardens round and about. Um, we are actually here um, for the walking. Uh, we're going to do two days' walking starting tomorrow, but it's... Um, just our luck that we've chosen a weekend when the pudding club is meeting on this friday evening and um, we are trying to have our dinner, but we are also thinking of the seven puddings we have to try. And quite frankly,
0: it's rather daunting. I'm actually a bit frightened. I think if we weren't doing a hike tomorrow, I wouldn't have liked to come to the pudding evening because I'd have felt so guilty eating seven puddings in a row.
5: Yes, I do agree with you. And, and at the moment, I can actually feel sort of seven more lumps appearing on my hips.
0: That's right, right, we'll <laughs> when, work it is? off. Wait, Here we come. <laughs> we'll work it off tomorrow. We'll work it off. (laughs)
6: so Sophie
0: what did you have for your first pudding Uh, my first pudding was the sticky
5: toffee and date pudding um, which was very nice because I'm not a sticky toffee and date person, but it was very very nice. Um, and marks out of ten, probably eight, something like that. But very sweet. So was that a tactic of yours to chip paper for that one first? Uh, no, no tactics at all. I just swammed up to the servery
0: and said, I'll have that one,
5: <laughs> which had to be sticky toffee and date.
0: See, I I went for the um, very chocolate pudding, which I. Oh that was beautiful. Is and I because chocolate pudding is probably one of my favourites, so I thought I'll go that for that one first, just in case I'm too full later to have right. it. So um, do you suggest I have chocolate pudding then? I'd say yeah, you yeah. Okay, and then. probably save the the um, the cold pudding till till, the last. Yeah. Charlotte, till last. Yeah, to yeah, last. Do you think, think we're going to get to the end of seven puddings? I I don't think I'll I don't think I'll be able to. <laughs> no, <laughs> to <nor> <laughs> I'll have to undo the top backing of my jeans, I think.
5: Well, as you're only a size six, it doesn't
0: really matter.
5: And we are going on this fantastic walk tomorrow. Exactly.
0: So we should get rid of it. Yes. After a very thrilling breakfast. Right. I'm tucking into my third pudding of the evening, which is the spotted dick, which a few people have said they're not too happy with, but I quite like it. I'll probably give it about an eight out of ten. But so far... Um, the Sussex Pond Pudding is winning. And I've never had the Sussex Pond Pudding before. But it's basically suet on the outside, whole lemons, yeah.
5: butter and sugar on the inside. And then it, as it cooks, the inside forms a pond. So the lemons melt down with mm. all the lovely sugar and butter. And you get, well, you do
0: get a pond in the middle. A lovely, moist, hot well, pond. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Well, I think that's been my favourite so far, but I'm seriously doubting the fact that I I don't think I can carry on.
3: That was our very own, slightly larger Abigail, (laughs) talking about her efforts to eat seven stodgy puddings in one night. Brilliant effort, Abigail. Um, Quite envious about possibly the first two puddings, but seven?
0: Did you manage seven? I couldn't manage seven, but one lady did. I don't know how she did it. She had to sort of unbuckle her... A loop or two. I did, think he, did he
6: eat any of the? Because
0: she had to eat a main meal first, didn't you? I think that's yeah, the problem. It's not a, a huge main meal; it's just sort of a, a light main course, um, a light sort of Yorkshire pudding, you know, beef wellington. Welling <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was chicken casserole, from what I remember. Mm. So I suppose it was quite heavy, really. But um,
3: and did you? You didn't have to make the puddings; they made them for you. Is oh no, that they've right?
0: got they've got a team of chefs there. Behind the wings, sweating it out, making all these puddings,
3: and then they force you to sweat it out as you eat sort of yeah heavy um, steamed spongy toffee yeah. chocolatey <laughs> jammy. Doughy. You're making
0: a real re- sweat <laughs> thinking about <it. laughs>
3: yeah. Oh, I mean, um, it sounds it sounds great, and you went for a walk after to kind of yeah. The following
0: day, we went for a ten mile a ten mile hike,
3: which was
0: a waddle. Is it more of a
3: waddle than a hike? Well, it's very impressive. Joe, have you ever done anything like that, a sort of eat-a-thon and then a -a walk-a-thon? I have
6: done lots of weekends which kind of revolve around food and then walking. It does make you feel a lot better knowing... I mean, you can eat a lot more knowing that you're going on a walk the next day.
3: I always always find it takes, with a walk, after a massive lunch, it's half an hour of pain. Yeah. And then suddenly, it's like any walk, it takes half an hour to get into your stride Mm. and suddenly you feel all energised and... It's it's the funny thing I've always felt that twenty minutes to half an hour mm. once you push through that first barrier you can walk for ten fifteen. The problem miles. with the,
6: the Cotswolds though, where where the Pudding Club is, is the first half hour is generally up a steep escarpment, isn't it? Yeah, and that that's, that's that was a really hard. I yeah. really felt it's like half an hour to
0: get to a flat top. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> by then you're fine. But yeah, that must sort of have an hurt. easy walk after the first after the first few miles. The trouble with with me when I go on long walks is I do bring a huge packed lunch with me. <laughs> I bring lots of cake and lots of chocolate. And I feel like I'm kind of defeating the object of wanting to get fit by just eating really unhealthy food on the
3: way. It's important to have those little rewards (laughs) along the route. No, I think you're absolutely right. You can't put on weight if you're a big walker. Well, that's it for this month. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as ever, if you'd like to learn more about the traditions and stories behind our landscape or find out what to do in your spare time in the British countryside, pick up a copy of Countryfile magazine or log on to countryfile.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now.
1: Whether it's gloriously sunny or a spring downpour, you can always get outdoors with regatta. So what are you waiting for? Find a route, grab your walking shoes and start exploring. Regatta Great Outdoors offers all types of performance footwear, from technical hiking boots for regular ramblers to durable walking shoes for the whole family. With waterproof and breathable qualities, shock-absorbing comfort and superior grip, regatta footwear is designed to withstand whatever challenges Mother Nature throws your way. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com.